Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast. My name is Ellen, and I'm a professional blackmailer. That's when all of a sudden I go, okay, everybody, one, two, go. And everybody goes in and just grabs as many flamingos as they can. Does anybody know what that sound was that we heard up above us here just a, just a moment ago? County police on fire. Do you have an emergency? Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. And I got out of the car, and I told my brothers and sisters, I said, go hide. It's just gone as, as wrong as it could have possibly gone. Eventually, this artificial voice, it started to sound like Doug again. Before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio. All year long, we gather the best stories from around the world and share them in a variety of ways, on the radio, on the internet, and at live listening events. We also host a worldwide competition to honor all of the wonderful work our medium has to offer and the talented producers who create it. These are the stories we're happy to bring you in the next hour, recently crowned at our award celebration in Chicago. One of the highlights of the year is this very night. I'm so happy. I, I see some of you got your fancy shoes on and your special coat. It's good to see radio people dressing up a little bit. We never do it. We never do it. You see Roman Mars? <laughs> that was Glenn Washington of the public radio show Snap Judgment and host of the 2013 Third Coast Award Celebration. This year, of the 270 entries that poured into the competition from 13 different countries, including the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, Brazil, and South Africa, nine earned top honors. On Best of the Best, you'll hear these winning stories and interviews with some of the producers who made them. Let's begin with our Best New Artist Award. This prize goes to a producer who's been working in the field for two years or less, whose creativity and ingenuity perk up your ears and alert you to a new voice in town. This year, the award goes to Emily Kwong. Her winning story is a profile of Doug Harlow, a man who had a big voice for most of his life. He was a prolific reporter, a Vietnam protester, and a poet. These days, however, due to circumstances beyond his control, he's using his voice in a different way. Emily Kwong tells his story. It was the 17th of June, 2005, when 56-year-old Doug Harlow stepped up to the microphone. You know, this really sucks, not having a voice. But it's, it's, a, it's a message to everybody who can hear this voice now. Don't smoke. Earlier that year, doctors had found cancer on Doug's vocal cords. In order to stay alive, he would have to lose his voice. So while a friend monitored the recording, Doug said some things to his family that he'd never be able to say again. I love you, Mary Lou. Love you. Love you guys. Love you, Johnny. Love you, Georgia. Love you, Mary Lou. I love you, Mary Lou. 
You, Sadie. Come on, Sadie. It's been eight years. There's a new dog. I'll wait. Can you sit? Good boy. Would you like to be in a radio documentary? And the throat cancer is gone. A simple yes or no will do. Doug came home from the hospital without vocal cords. That's because surgeons had removed his entire larynx, which is the organ of sound production. They cut a small hole at the base of his throat to allow him to breathe. And to speak, doctors handed him something called an electrolarynx. It was black, palm-sized, and battery-powered. I remember it being like a, a foreign appendage, something that was a machine that I was supposed to be able to talk with, through. I didn't give myself any choice. You're gonna, you're gonna learn how to use it, and then you're gonna go back to work. And that was it. Doug is 5'11", with brown eyes. His gaze is direct. Number 13 is tattooed on his left hand, which he applied himself with pencil lead and cigarette ash. This is the hand he speaks with. There's another couple buttons for Mitch. Up and down. So I could drink in a lower voice. I speak in a higher voice. Not easy to use. It's exhausting. Doug wears his electrolarynx around his neck on a black cord. He'll hold it flush against his throat, and with the push of a button, the voice box vibrates. Kind of like his vocal cords used to. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. It's not an unpleasant sound, but you'd never mistake it for a human voice. One of the first times Doug was out in public, he went to a Mr. Paperback bookstore. He approached a female clerk whose back was turned, and... I approached her, saying, uh, can you help me? She turned around, screamed, and ran into a back room, slammed the door shut. I said, great, I've got a lifetime of this Doug rebounded quickly. He returned to work at the Morning Sentinel five weeks after his surgery. His colleagues wondered if he'd keep reporting or take a silent post behind the copy desk. When Doug made interview calls, sources hung up on him. They accused him of making a prank phone call. Colin Hickey sat directly across from him. And this would just drive Doug crazy. Because, you know, he couldn't do his job. He couldn't get the information. And there were points where he'd ask me, can you make the call? Hey, my colleague has a mechanical voice. You've been hanging up on him. So when he calls next... Just hold on, and you'll get used to it. Doug kept calling, and eventually, he stopped asking Colin for help. Eventually, and I don't know if it was weeks, I don't know if it was months, but eventually, this artificial voice started to sound, it started to sound like Doug again. I finally learned how to use this thing and how to, uh, you know, throw in an, an inflection. These days, Doug is one of the paper's busiest reporters. He interviews cops and criminals and listens to the police scanner for activity. When he calls for information, the detectives understand his questions. Good afternoon, Doug Arlow calling. Hey. How are you doing anyway? What, what, you recognize my voice? 
Yeah, I'm just wondering if you could tell me what you're doing here. Yes, sir. So, what do you need today? We haven't had anything much going on. Yeah, well, that's my question. Um, <laughs> I already anticipated it. Well, I... Good day. All right, well, that's good news. Thank you. Doug is navigating life just fine with a voice box. He can say anything he wants to, but that doesn't mean he's always heard. It's changed the way he relates to people. Even his wife of 27 years, Mary Lou. I'm still talking the way that I always spoke when he had a voice, too. So it is something that I have to try to keep in mind, even like during an argument, giving him the opportunity to argue back, because I can get louder than what he can. So that kind of stuff is, is, is real. It is what it is. Not that I ever intend to do it, but I do do it. What do you do when you're not being heard? I shut up, and that's not like me, you know? I used to be uh, outspoken a lot more than I am now because I cannot be heard, and if I can't be heard, then I'm not gonna say it. Um, it's frustrating at times, it makes me angry at times still. Parties or loud restaurants can get discouraging. There's a lot Doug wants to say, but he ultimately depends on technology to say it. It's the only thing I have. It's the only way that I can speak. Mm. And that's kind of weird if you slow down for a minute and think about that. You know, when the power goes out finally and fully, when the mountain meets the sea at Armageddon, I'm not going to have batteries and then I will be silent. But Doug is far from silent. He's still heard because he's still here. I knew I would survive because the last thing I want to do is die. My kids wouldn't have had a father. My wife wouldn't have had a husband. So I chose life. And this is what it sounds like. Hearts of Speech was produced by Emily Kwong while she attended the SALT Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. After graduating from SALT, Emily traveled to India to teach radio making to teens. She's currently an intern at Radio Rookies in New York. For a link to her latest work, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Our next Third Coast Award winner comes from Love and Radio, the podcast best known for producing provocative tales about people whose lives are intriguing and even dark. Their stories are complex and might even make you question your own assumptions about good and evil, like this year's winner. It hasn't aired on the radio in its entirety and may never, due to its subject matter, extorting money from pedophiles on the Internet. Jack and Ellen is evocative, sonically inventive, and winner of a 2013 Third Coast Honorable Mention Award. Here's a very short excerpt. My name is Ellen, and I'm a professional blackmailer. I had just moved to to live here with a few of my friends, but I had only saved up about $500. So within a month or two, that money was gone because I'm not really <laughs> responsible with my money at all. So 
I began stealing things. DVDs, box sets, printer ink, anything in the electronics department that I could get my hands on. But that was too risky. I, every time that I would steal, I would have to walk through some metal detectors and my heart would just sink to the bottom of my, of my stomach. You can only get away with it for so long. I began looking for jobs, of course, but, but it was really tedious to work as a sandwich artist. I decided to Google how to make quick money and ended up on this message board called uh, Bad Ideas. I probably went through about five pages, how to break into houses, how to break into cars. Not anything that I could do because I wasn't a master lock picker. I wasn't comfortable mugging people. So I was thinking, oh, I might just have to move back home. I don't have rent money. What am I doing? And I was starting to give up. But then on the fifth page, I came across this uh, entry titled pedo baiting, a term that I had never heard of before. I clicked on it and I began reading all about it. Pedobating is when you post as a teenager to lure in pedophiles to either make money or humiliate them. Most people, they know about to catch a predator, but they don't know about to con a predator. I thought, well, I can do this from my bedroom. All that I needed was a laptop, an internet connection, and uh, my imagination. It's easy to have a fake Facebook account, but it's not easy to make a fake Facebook account look real. I took about a week. Jack lives in Miami, Florida. From Seattle, Washington. He knows English and Spanish. He's uh, single, interested in women. He's interested in women on his profile because he's still in the closet. So. I showed what books he was into, Sirens of Titan, Franny and Zoe, Catcher in the Rye. Books that I read while I was still in high school. He likes Pink Floyd, Explosions in the Sky, Beach House, The Smiths, Jose Gonzalez, Animal Collective. I made 15 other fake profiles so that Jack could have friends to make comments like, oh, you look cute, I miss you. Where have you been? It's been so long. And that's it. We hope we piqued your interest with that short excerpt from Jack and Ellen, winner of a 2013 Third Coast Honorable Mention Award, produced by Mooj Sadie, Brendan Baker, and Nick Vanderkolk for the Love and Radio podcast. You can hear the entire documentary at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition, but you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up next, what happens when things we take for granted, like electricity and shelter and food, disappear in a matter of minutes? My dad just looked at us and he's like, well, you know, if we die, we die together. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. County police on fire. Do you have an emergency? No, ma'am. A police officer is not going to take you home. Hello? A police officer is not going to take you home. They're not going out in this storm any more than you're going out in the storm. Anniversary stories are tough. Memories fade and the public consciousness moves on. But the 2013 Third Coast Bronze Award winner is an example of just how effectively and beautifully this work can be done. Hurricane Andrew was a Category 5 storm, the highest category there is. When it hit Florida in August of 1992, 250,000 people were left temporarily homeless and more than 40 people died. Twenty years later, the NPR station in Miami, WLRN, and the Miami Herald teamed up to commemorate the anniversary of the catastrophe. They recorded 30 hours of interviews and combed through 24 hours of archival footage. We have two excerpts from Remembering Andrew. In the first, producers Alicia Zuckerman and Kenny Malone look back on how people did, or in some cases didn't, prepare for the oncoming storm. It's going to do beyond major devastating action. In fact, it's not even no police officer, no fire department, no Coast Guard, no nobody is going to jeopardize their lives for people that decide too late to get out. You are on your own. And friends, it is going to happen now for Dade County. Now, when you see us move and you're watching us, we want you to move to your safe spot. So we're all staring at the the TV, and at one point, someone says, In West Miami, eight miles from WTVJ Studios, Danny Rivero and his family are huddled in the living room, staring at the television screen. And then everyone says, no, 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 como que we change the channel? We're going to watch this. This is what we're watching. This is what we're going to do all day. And there was a big verbal assault going on. Everyone was screaming at each other. It was very loud. It was very... Cuban, <laughs> and um, the verdict came down that we're just going to watch this screen that might as well be blank and just listen to the voice coming out of it telling us that we're all going to die, that we're all going to be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, and then you hear some some chatter in the background like, esto, estoy cansado, no quiero ver esto. I remember watching Brian Norcross and then just, you know, the whole day is set up with, you know, the coverage of the impending storm and what you should do. As and, Andrew approaches, 17-year-old Jenny Del Campo is home watching TV in Homestead. And I remember seeing my zip code. It just scrolled by and I was like, 33031? I'm like, that's us. And I, I told my dad, I said, listen, they're evacuating this area, this zip code, we're, we shouldn't stay here. And he laughed at me. And uh, they called me La Gorda, my whole family. He's like, oh, Gorda, don't be a chicken. I've been through millions of hurricanes. Nothing's going to happen. And I think it's more like a male Cuban thing. I'm not leaving my house. This is a really well-built house. This is a well-built house. This is a well-constructed house. This is a really well-built house. That was his thing. Jenny and her brothers called their dad the Hulk. And we used to make him, you know, like flex and do the growling thing. And uh, he was a big, strong man, huge back, huge wrists. Oscar Del Campo didn't just look like the Hulk. 
He was the kind of dad who threatened to take Jenny's boyfriends out back and give them the business if they ever tried to touch her. With the storm bearing down, the Hulk goes to work, moving patio furniture, boarding up windows, and tying up the horses in the stable behind the house. Jenny stays inside watching TV. Fourteen miles north, at the Miami Metro Zoo, Ron McGill is helping move animals, African serval cats, parrots, pythons, and flamingos. One of the things I remember seeing is that there were no native animals around. It was kind of really spooky in the fact that there were no egrets, there were no ibis. I didn't see anything except our animals and our collection on exhibit. Whereas you normally see tons of native animals, kind of freeloaders that come in to get food. They were gone. As if they knew something was coming. They knew it was time to get out of Dodge. Flamingos are fragile. They can easily break a leg, so the zoo waits until the very last minute to move them. Ron and about 20 other workers stand on the edge of the flamingo pond and surround the birds. That's when all of a sudden they go, okay, everybody, one, two, go. And everybody goes in and just grabs as many flamingos as they can. And we're handing them up. we got people on the bridge. We're handing them up one by one. And they're walking into the bathroom, letting them go to the bathroom, coming back, getting more. person literally hand walks them, holds them up to his chest, hands walk, hand walks to the bathroom, opens the bathroom door, lets them go. And they immediately go to the other flamingo that's already been left out. It's the first flamingo that gets in the bathroom that's kind of freaked out. Oh, my God, I'm the only one here. It's just a lot of flapping and flamingos make a very unattractive sound. Just... An hour later, all the flamingos are in the bathroom. All these long pink legs and necks are crammed between the sinks and bathroom stalls. 20 to 30 flamingos just standing there. And they're all in the corner, hovering in the corner, just kind of looking at you and looking at their own reflection in the mirror on the wall over the sink. And you look at their faces and they're kind of like, what the heck is this? That was our first excerpt from Remembering Andrew. Even after all the warnings and preparations, the storm's ferocity caught a lot of people by surprise. Here's our second excerpt, which takes place during the storm itself. Does anybody know what that sound was that we heard up above us here just a, just a moment ago? Um, that was a very interesting sound. It sounded as if something dropped on the roof, didn't it? It's what, exactly what it sounded like, yes. Uh, maybe I, we can uh, punch that radar I don't, can, up. If we, why don't we uh, just leave that shot up, and I would be, I would, did I just hear that sound again? Yeah, I did too. Um, you hear your heart beating. I can feel the walls breathing. It's just like, and we, we were hearing this, just sort of. I remember hearing my screen door smacking around in the rain. And then all of a sudden, boom, and this bright light comes in the room and I realize the piece of plywood blew off the door. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear it anymore. So I thought, oh good, the wind is blowing down. And then I realized the whole screen blew away. This glass has many cracks in it. It is about to blow. You can see the wind starting to come through. People's uh, satellite dishes were hitting your house. Boats were flying by. You know, we had very large trees. Those headed across the plains like tumbleweeds. The sliding doors in the atrium were bowing in and out. I never thought glass could bend that way. I just want you to listen and hear this wind is about 140 mile an hour winds we're experiencing. This is unbelievable. Our lives are seriously in danger. Glass is flying everywhere. We are stuck in the hallway. I'm signing off for a little while. Uh, where's this? Where's this? See if we can find this. There's two by fours we had before. Maybe we can brace this with two by fours. Eric, get your bus. Go. 
and we have okay, another woman on the phone. Stand by in South Miami here. We have someone else on the phone who's in dire straits. Hello? Yes. Where are you? At 137 and 111 Street. And what happened? And half the roof went in. So, um, I want to know if we should open a window and let the... No, no, don't worry about opening windows here. Where, where are you in the house compared to the part where the roof came in? In the middle. I want you to stay exactly where you are. Nobody should go out. You are not out of the storm yet. The storm is going to be with you for some time yet. Oh, God. Destruction looks pretty bad. The hurricane is still going. At the height of the storm, to hear that, that, that sound, it's almost like a train coming through the house. It's just a... Freight train and just how the building was, was shaking. It just it reverberates in the entire house inside my head. I'm going, this is really bad. God help me. closet door closed and someone said we're gonna die we're gonna die we're gonna die um my dad just looked at us and he's like well you know if we die we die together that was an excerpt from the 2013 third coast bronze award winner remembering andrew i talked with producers alicia zuckerman and kenny malone about how they put this story together What we really wanted to get across during this storm section of the piece was that sense of isolation that we heard from every single person that we talked to. It was this moment in time where you lost contact with everybody in the outside world and you weren't sure if anyone else was okay. You weren't sure if you were going to be okay. And so it was important for us as narrators to not be part of that section of the piece. So that storm scene is so vivid and so real. How did you guys go about starting to think about it and how did you build that scene Uh, all the sound that's all real that's actual audio recorded during hurricane andrew from different places but um but all actual sound we knew from the outset that archival footage was going to be hard to come by because it was pre-digital and so we had somebody just dig in and start collecting as much archival tape as possible Um, and then eventually we started also using this Public Insight Network tool, which is very, very powerful. It's an opt-in database of essentially citizen sources that are just there, and you can kind of ping them about various things, and usually you get one or two responses if it's a very specific kind of topic. When it's a shared experience like a hurricane, we learn that like everybody has a story that they want to tell. And some of our best stories, never before told, like never been reported, came from the Public Insight Network. And one one of the things we're really, really proud of is that we took a 20-year anniversary story, something that has been reported to death, and we were able to give it new life and, and actually tell stories that people had not heard before. So you guys were able to find all these stories that nobody had heard before. Um, but like you said, it, the event was 20 years ago. Alicia, why do you think this story still matters? 
South Florida is a fairly transient place. So there are a lot of people who live here now who didn't live through Hurricane Andrew. And Hurricane Andrew was kind of like the defining storm of this region. It, it changed uh, a lot about life here. It changed a lot about the way people live. Um, and there are things about uh, the way life is here that if you don't really understand Hurricane Andrew, you probably just don't understand. And so the goal of this hour was to really um, allow listeners to get a real sense of what it was like to live through Hurricane Andrew. And in doing that, I think all of us who worked on it who didn't live through the storm got that sense as well. Alicia Zuckerman, who, along with Kenny Malone, Dan Gretsch, Sammy Mack, and Trina Sargalski, produced the 2013 Third Coast Bronze Award winner, Remembering Andrew. It was a joint production of WLRN and the Miami Herald. To hear the entire hour-long documentary, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up next, the story of two moms, two dads, and one baby involved in a heartbreaking custody battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, what is what is a culture except, you know, the ideas and traditions that you pass on to your kids? Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. My grandma would say, stay in the car, lock yourself in, don't get out of the car, I'm going into the trading post because they're going to steal you. And now we've come to one of our highest honors, the Third Coast Silver Award. At the micro level, this story from WNYC's Radio Lab is about two families embroiled in a difficult custody battle. At a macro level, the story is about a threat to decades of law passed to protect Native American families. Here's adoptive couple v. baby girl in two excerpts. Producer Tim Howard tells the story. You'll also hear the voices of Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad and Robert Krulwich. The story begins with a couple. Matt and Melanie Capobianco, um, they are a couple who live down here in South Carolina. He's a technician at Boeing. She's a developmental psychologist. Nice middle-class white couple. They're in their late 30s. And they really wanted to have a kid. They had gone through, uh, you know, infertility problems. It wasn't working out. So 
eventually. And they decide to adopt. Enter a woman named Chrissy Maldonado. She lives about a thousand miles away. I believe she's in Oklahoma. She's in her 20s, already has a couple kids. She's pregnant and decides that she wants to give the baby up for adoption. And she picks the Capobiancos. And everyone seems happy. The Capobiancos get the baby and they name her Veronica. We used to call her Boss Lady. Not a lot. Most of the time it was... Our family called her that. Yeah. Boss Lady. Bosses everybody around. This is Matt and Melanie Capobianco. But you were happy to do whatever <laughs> she told you to do because she's just yeah. the uh, poster child for a, a proud father, you know? Hmm. But it's just gone as, as wrong as it could have possibly gone. This is basically how it unfolded on TV news. Our concession on the docket today, a young child ripped from the arms of the only parents she's ever known. And turned over to the Native American biological father she has never met. A man Veronica had never even met. What happened is when Veronica was two, her biological dad turned up seemingly out of nowhere. And according to these clips, hadn't been around for two years, had abandoned the child, and now he's asking for custody. And he gets it. And the court is making them stand by and just let it happen. Wait, why? Well, it's mainly because of this law. The Indian Child Welfare Act. The 1978 uh, Indian, Indian Child, Child Welfare, Welfare Act. Act. Dustin, the dad, he's Cherokee. He's a part of the Cherokee Nation. Also so that makes his daughter, Veronica, eligible to be Cherokee. And the law is designed to keep Indian families together. It gives preference to Indian kids staying with Indian parents. So even though he'd actually signed papers agreeing to the adoption, he was able to invoke this law and get custody of Veronica. He signed his custody away and he was able to then use his Cherokeeness to reverse the rights he signed away? Just hang on. All right. This is all going to make sense. Okay, but he takes the so, kid is what you're saying. Yeah. New Year's Eve 2011, with cameras rolling, Dustin Brown drives his pickup truck into Charleston. Matt and Melody Capobianco clutch to two-year-old Veronica. This could possibly be the last time they hold their baby as her mom and dad. And that evening, Veronica is transferred to Dustin. I didn't feel like we had enough time for her to be not afraid when we she's... Her, we left when, her with strangers. Yeah, when she's... I mean, to her, they're complete strangers, and I can't imagine that she's not going to be terrified. And as Dustin gets into the truck, holding his two-year-old daughter for the first time, a reporter asks him. Do you think this is in her best interest? And this is all you hear from him. I think so. Let's get back, please. We need to give her a Thank chance you. again. Have you ever seen the child before? They declined any further comment on camera. He gets into the truck with Veronica, and they drive away, back to Oklahoma. Can I, do you, can I ask you, what, what was the, when was the last time that you spoke with Veronica? The day after, um, the day after the, uh, Transfer. Transfer. Oh, a phone call? After, yeah, we spoke to her for about two minutes, and we, uh, told her we loved her, and she said, I love you, Mommy, and I love you, Daddy, and, I don't know, just a few minutes, and, hmm. but that was it. That was the last time we were able to be in touch. And that was 16 months ago. And how long was Veronica with them again before this happened? About two years. Oh, man, that's hard. Yeah. And, you know, when I first heard about this case, that's basically the the only way I thought of it, you know? It's just, yeah. that's a crazy injustice. That's basically all I saw 
in it. I mean, if you're someone who has no background in this, then you see a case like the Baby Veronica case, and you're like, whoa, where is this coming from? How can this possibly be okay? That's Marsha Zug again. And her article for Slate kind of caught me off guard because the title was Doing What's Best for the Tribe. Two-year-old Veronica was ripped from the only home she's ever known. The court made the right decision. Yeah. So I called up to ask her, like, what do you mean by that? So I mean, one of the things that I think important to realize is that the problems that ICWA was intended to address didn't stop happening that long ago. And and this is where the story turned into the biggest rabbit hole I've ever fallen into. <laughs> what, what did she tell you? I mean, Marcia basically said the only way you can begin to wrap your mind around what's right and what's wrong in this story is to go back to the 60s. Bert, how you doing? Good, how are you, Tim? Great to meet you. Same here. And to this guy. Bert Hirsch. Um, I'm a lawyer. He lives in Long Island now, which is where I visited him. But in 1967... The fall of 67, I was on the staff of the Association on American Indian Affairs. Sort of a legal advocacy group for American Indians. And he traveled all over, working with different tribes. And, um... One day... He gets a phone call from this guy, Lewis Goodhouse. The tribal chair of the Devil's Lake Sioux tribe in North Dakota. And this guy says, I really need your help. He said, there's a child. A Devil's Lake kid, one of ours, that was just abruptly taken away by social workers. The Benson County, North Dakota Social Services Agency came in, and they took little Ivan Brown away from his uh, grandmother. He was six. What was their stated reason for taking uh, Ivan away? Neglect. Because what, because grandma wasn't wasn't around? No, actually, Bird says that the social workers were looking for that classic nuclear family. Biological mother, biological father, children. So when they saw him with an older relative, but no mom or dad, they thought, uh-oh. And they took him away. The tribal council was extremely uh, upset by this. They wanted to fight a battle about this. Bert took the case, fought it in court. We won that case, by the way. We, uh, at Mrs. Alex Fournier, she got Ivan back after a somewhat protracted battle. But he began to wonder, how widespread is this? So from 67 to the end of 68 into 69. He visited tribe after tribe after tribe. Doing interviews. And he says that everywhere he went, he would hear these stories. I remember it vividly. This is Deb Wells. She's a member of the Rosebud Sioux tribe. And when she was 10 years old, a car pulled into her driveway. They come driving in, social workers, and they got out of the car. And I told my brothers and sisters, I said, go hide. And they had to drag us out from underneath the bed because we got around and got in the house. So then they took us to Scott's Bluff and put us in a foster home. It was horrible. This was just part of every Native family's history. This is Marla Jean Big Boy. She grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. I remember when I was young, we'd go to one of the border towns, and my grandma would say, stay in the car, lock yourself in, don't get out of the car, I'm going into the trading post, because they're going to steal you. Really? Yeah. What we found is that on every reservation... My name is uh, Michael Evan Nohart. I'm a full-blood of Papa Lakota from Standing Rock Reservation. You couldn't not find a family that didn't know of a child in placement. Social services came and uh, took me and my sister and told my mother and dad that they were taking us into Bowbridge for a physical checkup, and they never brought us back. 
Wow. Michael says that his dad spent the next 30 years looking for him. In any case, Bert would ask these people that he was interviewing, what reason did the social workers give you for taking the child? And the answer is that he got ran the gamut. Conditions of poverty, alcoholism. Overcrowding. Maybe they don't have adequate ventilation in the house. No indoor plumbing. But in most cases, he says, the reasons wouldn't have stood up in court. They would put papers in front of them and they would sign. They didn't know what they were signing. Some families. If they could, they tried to fight it. But they usually couldn't afford to. Look, the tribal people are poor. So uh, we began to do a statistical collection of data, state by state. Asking how many Indian kids are in foster care. Foster care and adoptive placement and institutional placement, juvenile facilities. And what he arrived at at the end of that analysis is a pretty shocking number. About one-third of Indian children were in out-of-home placements in non-Indian settings. One-third? 25 to 35 percent of Indian children nationwide were in out-of-home placements. That's a real number? That is a real number. That's the number you see cited again and again. Nobody connected the dots. Everybody thought that it was their own personal tragedy. Nobody realized that this was a pattern and a practice that was decimating these tribes. Wait a second. Wait a second. How would this happen on this scale? I mean, like, would this, is this just a bunch of social workers making the same decision independently, or is it like a policy? Well, uh, this is basically social workers very much acting in the spirit of the day. Because you have to keep in mind that in the 50s and 60s, you have all these government policies that are put in place whose entire purpose is basically to try to once and for all solve this Indian problem that's gone on and on. You've got this guy in 1953 who's a senator from Utah who starts basically trying to terminate the tribes. You mean like take away their sovereignty? Yeah. He goes tribe to tribe trying to convince them or force them, tell them they have no, there's no way out of it. He argues that this will be best for all of them. I remember this. This was like out of e pluribus unum, like to, to, to integrate them yeah. into the whole. They will melt into the wider culture. That's what will save them. Part of this was... Part of the social workers that were working in this period, they were working under the auspices of this thing called the Indian Adoption Project, Hmm. which was very much about that idea of, like, you take these kids from their poor conditions and you connect them directly to white families that are looking to adopt. So part of this was definitely top-down. Very much. In any case, the end result of this is that a third of these kids are being taken away. There were literally communities where there were no children. That's Terry Cross. He's the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. In Minnesota, there were communities where there were no children. In Alaska, there were communities where there were no children. I mean, what is, what is a culture except, you know, the ideas and traditions that you pass on to your kids? That's Marsha Zug again. If you are hemorrhaging your children, then you're going to disappear. So what, what do you do? Well, it's too massive a problem if you're trying to fight... Uh, all these removals of kids on a case-by-case basis, forget about it. A national law is needed. So Bert spent years... Walking the halls of Congress, literally. Endless lobbying, congressional hearings, until finally... The Indian Child Welfare Act is passed by Congress in 1978. So it does a lot, but basically when it comes to adoptions... ICWA has placement preferences. So the first preference would be with the immediate family. So you're removed from mom, you're placed with dad, or maybe with grandmother. If they say no? Second preference would be someone else in the tribe. And the third 
uh, is any other American Indian. Wow. Any other? Yeah. And then after that, uh, then the child could be placed with, you know, another family. Well, so if you're white and you're trying to adopt an Indian kid, you have, you have a lot of roadblocks. Yes. But by and large, most of us think that ICWA was probably the, the best federal Indian law ever passed. It did the most to help Indian tribes, respect tribal sovereignty, and really fulfill the United States' trust relationship uh, with American Indian people. But now, because of this case, that law may be in jeopardy. That was our first excerpt from Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl from producer Tim Howard. Now, the one voice we haven't heard in the story so far is that of the birth dad, Dustin Brown. We know that he signed away his rights, has never been involved in baby Veronica's life, and now wants custody. Dustin initially refused to talk to reporters, but when he felt that the media coverage was all one-sided, he agreed to talk to producer Tim Howard about his relationship with Veronica's birth mother. We've known each other since we were 16. We've dated off and on. Throughout 2008, he joins the Army. Basic training. He lives on a base. It's four hours away. Four hours south of and uh, Christmas time that year, he basically says, let's get serious. Got down on one knee and proposed to her, said, hey, I want to bring you into my life. She said, okay, that's just great. And almost a month later, she'd send me a message saying that she was pregnant. And I was excited. I mean... Huh. Have children with her was was one of the things I wanted at that time. Told her I can move you and your kids up to the base. Housing was going to be free on base. There was schools for her kids. She could get a job right there on base. You know, everything was taken care of. I mean, everything was going great. You know. And then pretty quickly, the whole thing just soured. It's impossible to know exactly what happened, but Christy says that Dustin just simply didn't offer any support. He says that he did, or he tried to at least, but shortly after she got pregnant, she basically just shut him out, stopped taking his calls. I didn't get no phone calls, no text messages, nothing from her out of the blue, and I'm just like, well, what's going on? And he says that he tried to get in touch with her. Texting her up, trying to call her, still no answer. Uh, There's a couple times that I've went back to the Barzell, went to her house. Drove those four hours from the base. Knocked on her door. I could hear, you know, voices in the house. It sounded like her and the kids, they wouldn't answer the door for me. And then one day he says, She sent me a message saying, I don't want to be with you no more. And three weeks after that, she's like, well, I want you to sign your rights over. His parental rights. Would you sign your rights over? You guys are texting this or are you talking? Oh, uh, the whole time we're text messaging this because she wouldn't talk to me. What did you think it meant? To me, I just thought she wanted me to sign my rights over to her. And I'm like, this is something I really don't want to do. He says she kept texting him that question. And looming in his mind was the fact that he just learned. That we were going to be going to Iraq to do a radar mission, so... And he starts to wonder, what's the right thing to do here? You know, if there was one of them chances I wasn't going to come back, I wanted to make the right choice and let the mother be that sole parent. And he says that he's holding out hope that if he does make it back... We'll get back together and she'll just change her mind. Finally, I just told her, I was like, all right, I'll sign my rights over. Months go by. Christy has the baby. He says he doesn't know exactly when because they weren't speaking. But then... Six days before I had to go deploy to Iraq, I get a phone call from 
some guy in Washington County, the process server, said, hey, we need you to sign some papers so you can sign your uh, custody rights over. And the guy directed him to an office right near the base. Went there and signed the paper. And What did you think it meant? Uh, the whole time I thought it was just, you know, the paperwork for me signing custody rights to her. But when I got done signing, the guy said, you just signed your rights away. And so did the biological mother. The baby's been up for adoption. She's been living in South Carolina for four months. Dustin says this is the first moment that he realized what was actually happening, that the baby was up for adoption, and he says that he had no idea he had just legally consented to it. I should have had a lawyer there with me. At that point in time, I grabbed the paper, and the guy looked at me and said, if you're going to rip that up, he said, it's, a, it's not good to do that. That he could be arrested. And I said, what do I got to do? He said, you need to get a lawyer. Which he immediately did. And that's why the courts have ruled in his favor, because they say that from that moment, he's clearly demonstrated that he wants to be her dad. I mean, I never, never once did I want to give up on my daughter. Never once did I want to give her up. I mean, everybody says that I gave her up. Never wanted to. Now, Mark and Lori say that if this were any other guy, any other man of any other race. The story would be over right about here. It's too late. He wouldn't have any rights at all. Under every state's laws, too late. Under the federal constitution, too late. He rejected that opportunity to become a father. But he has one thing in his favor, says Lori. He happens to be Cherokee. And because of that fact... Not only can this sort of man object, but he gets an automatic transfer of custody to him. And Mark and Lori see that as basically the worst kind of preferential treatment. And that is unbelievable. This is John. John Nichols. This is Shannon. Shannon Jones. And They're two of Dustin's lawyers. And John says, okay, there's preferential treatment. Fine. But, but think about why all the protections of ICWA are there. These roadblocks are there for a reason. We went over this earlier, but, you know, basically people are being manipulated out of their kids. And while you might like to think that that's ancient history... Now fast forward to 2010... He says the same thing is happening in this case. And we have a registered member of the Cherokee Nation. We have his child being given up for adoption without his knowledge and without his consent. And they kept this adoption from him for months and then spring it on him six days before he leaves the country? It's, it looks to us like it was engineered to make sure he got served, but not in enough time to where he could put up a fight. I believe it was absolutely intentional. And Shannon suggests that they knew about ICWA, they knew it would apply, and they were trying to sidestep it. There were so many errors. You just did a little air quotes on errors, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I did. Because, I mean, like, I'm for example, there's this one important form where Shannon says that they went out of their way to make it look like Veronica is not Native American. Because it would be detrimental to the adoption. That's just, um, it's a preposterous argument. You know, the form... Mark and Lori say the reason that nobody put Cherokee in big, bright, flaming letters is simple. Christy herself is predominantly Hispanic. Dustin is predominantly Caucasian and is approximately 2% Cherokee. What? Did she say 2%? Yeah, I, Veronica herself would be a little bit over 1%. Wait, this whole thing is happening because he's only 
Well, I feel like that changes things somehow. Well, yeah, but you have to keep in mind that Cherokee Nation doesn't care about the percentage of Cherokee in your blood. That's not how they determine their members. Being a member of the Cherokee Nation is like being a member of the United States. You are a citizen of the nation. You know, if if your parents are a U.S. citizen, you're automatically a citizen. That's Chrissy Nemo, Assistant Attorney General for Cherokee Nation. If your parents are a Cherokee citizen, you're not automatically a citizen. But you can automatically apply. So it's based on direct lineage. But still, you're right, because this is the argument that is most troubling to the tribes. Both Chrissy Nemo and Marsha Zug told me that if the Supreme Court ends up deciding that ICWA is unconstitutional because it really is race-based, unconstitutional because it's a race-based preference, it calls into question every single federal Indian law. There goes Indian law. This is a case that they could use to do that. That was an excerpt from Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl, produced by Tim Howard for the Radio Lab podcast. In June of 2013, the case was heard by the Supreme Court, who would decide not only which family baby Veronica would end up with, but potentially whether or not the Indian Child Welfare Act was in itself constitutional. Here's producer Tim Howard. The Supreme Court rules in favor of the Capo Biancos. They say that ICWA shouldn't have applied in this case because Dustin Brown didn't have custody of Veronica when he invoked ICWA. So that is to say that ICWA wasn't overturned. It was a very narrow ruling and that the tribes were relieved. There was a threat for a much bigger ruling against ICWA, which Clarence Thomas wanted, and that didn't happen. So after a crazy summer with a lot of legal battles and a whole lot of drama. Eventually, Veronica was given back to the Capobiancos, and she is now living with them in South Carolina. And it's it's unclear, you know, to what extent Dustin and Robin Brown will be able to visit Veronica. But I imagine there will be some sort of visitation happening. I'm just just not really sure. How did your opinions change as you did the story? My opinions just got jerked all around. I really started this off with a lot of uh, conviction based on not a ton of information. And, you know, at the same time as I, as I formed this, uh, this pretty quick opinion that this girl shouldn't have been taken away from this couple and brought to this guy that she'd never met— I kind of suspected that if this were going to the Supreme Court, it it has to actually be a lot more complicated than that. I think the only real moral clarity that I I did get out of this story was basically the sense of of how much uh, Native American tribes were just really terribly affected by, by policies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and how many families were just destroyed, and how those effects linger on now. For me, this was a real process in learning that, uh, it, you know, if you come very quickly to judgment on something where there are other people's lives at stake, that you should probably realize that you need to do a lot more research on it. And you really will probably never get to the bottom of it. Tim Howard, producer of the 2013 Third Coast Silver Award winner, Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl, edited by Chad Abumrad. Tim had more updates and insights about the story. Hear the full interview at thirdcoastfestival.org. When he's not producing stories for Radiolab, Tim is writing and recording indie rock under the name Soltero. 
When you find the kind of stories you love, you can collect them and carry them with you all the time, literally on your phone or iPod or figuratively in your memory. And at the right time, at the right moment, you can pull them out, listen, re-listen, and enjoy. Living a life with open ears rewards you in countless ways. There's a lot of noise out there and a lot of beauty. We're happy to bring you the best of it all. Thanks for spending the hour with us. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Tune in to Resound next week for Hour 2 of Best of the Best and find out who won this year's top prize, the Gold Award. The program was produced by Katie Mingle with assistance from Maya Goldberg-Safer and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive producer of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Julie Shapiro. Support for Best of the Best comes from SJL Shannon, Legal Career Management. SJL Shannon's consultants, coaches, and trainers help lawyers and law firms find success in a competitive marketplace. More at sjlshannon.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, an independent arts organization, was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago.